Are you awake? I feel like you're a little sleepy. We may have to turn the lights, all the lights all the way up, because I need you to see your Bible this morning. If you have a Bible, open your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll get there in just a moment. There is the lights. Uh, wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. So uh, this has uh, been a long week. Let me tell you why, and we'll get to our text in a minute. I, uh, the irony of this statement does not uh, fall loosely on me. This week, I have been the camp pastor at an Alabama Baptist youth music camp, <laughs> you know, if you know me, I are not musical. Amen. I play a great XM radio and that's about it. That's about all I got. And uh, this, this week I was down in Chaco back and forth, back and forth. And uh, just, I mean, I just, I'll tell you, I love our, I love students. I just love teenagers. Uh, I act like one and I'm, I'm discovering some things about myself that I still think I'm a teenager or early twenties. <laughs> My body's beginning to remind me otherwise every single day. Amen. Um, but it's good to be around students sometimes because they bring energy to your life and they, they remind you that God is still working, right? Even in our adult life, if we're adulting, sometimes we think, well, the whole next generation, they're just all out there in left field, but they're not. Thank God, God is raising up a next generation of faithful worshipers. And uh, it, was, it, was, it was good for me, although exhausting. And let me just, on that note, let me tell you this. This is the most I've ever preached in one week. I have preached 10 sermons now in just barely over a week. So this is number 10 going back to last Sunday morning. So y'all bear with me. At some point, just prop me up next to the pulpit and tell me to talk, okay? By the way, it was 10 different sermons, just for the record. So uh, whoo, I'm tired, amen? Uh, I've heard it said before that a sermon is like a full day's, an eight-hour job worth of work. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, it has hit me like a ton of bricks the last day and a half. So Amen. Praise God for that. We are in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're going to get to verse 8 through 22 in just a moment. But we're in a series called Different. And our objective here is to see how God has made us different in the culture and the world that we live in. He's, and Peter, the apostle, is writing to the church in Asia Minor who's experiencing some challenges, some significant challenges, a culture that is opposed to God and Christ. And so there's, there's suffering, there's trial, there's challenges on every site. And yet the gospel itself calls us to live distinctly different. And so how do we do that? It's really a how-to. And last week we talked about uh, marriage. Marriage is why we're gathered here today. We talked about marriage. Um, we talked about sexuality and, uh, and, and, and gender and that kind of stuff because the gospel invades those discussions. Amen. Right? And then we're going to get on a little bit further down the road today, and we're going to talk about a tension that we see. And the tension really lies within interpersonal relationships. Okay. Um, let me just kind of preface the statement. If none of us are perfect, amen? amen? You know what happens when you stick more than one person in a room? You get multiple sinners in a room, amen, right? And sometimes not everybody sees eye to eye. That may shock you, I know, right? I mean, you're like, your preacher, like, that never happens. We're always on the same page, me and, and everybody else, and we're always on the same page. And I got to tell you, that's not always the case. Thank God that the gospel tells us how we're supposed to interact with each other in moments like that. So we're going to look at attention and we're going to look at suffering and trial on the back end of that. And that will become a discussion later on that will come back up in our conversation as well. So if you have a Bible, we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 and following. If you don't have a Bible with us, it's going to be on the screen. If you're at home with us today, grab a Bible, grab a piece of paper that you can take some notes. Everybody else should have a worship guide. If you've not gotten one, they are out in the lobby. You uh, have my permission to get up and run back there or walk back there and then come back in, okay? All right, verse 8, 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter writes, finally, but don't get, don't get excited because there's still a lot more of the book, okay? But it's, it's finishing up a conversation about, okay, how the gospel in fact impact the way that we live. He says, finally, 
all of you have unity of mind. Here's some characteristics as a Christian living out the gospel. Have unity of mind. That does not mean that we're supposed to all think alike because that'd be a scary thing, right? You ever want to think like Pastor Joey? Don't trust me. You don't want to go there. Amen. I, I, want to, I look at some of y'all and I think, I don't want to think like them either, right? What he's talking about is, is, a, is a harmony of purpose, a sympathy, a compassion, he says, a brotherly love. It's that word philos that Philadelphia comes from, a brotherly love, a, a tender heart, a tender heart. And, a, and I think this is a great one too, a, a humble mind. And I look at these qualities and I think many of them parallel the fruits of the spirit. You know, that we get in Galatians chapter five. These are, these are the, the, the evidence that the gospel has taken root in our heart and our life. And as a result of this, this is how we interact with each other, right? And, and again, much like much everything else in the first Peter, it is countercultural and it is counterintuitive because we really don't want to have unity of mind. We want to be our own person, right? And in fact, in cults that we live in, we really kind of cha- champion, right? Every individuality, right? Every, every, every little distinction. Thought and right, and so we, we kind of champion that. We, we champion pride in many ways, and I'm not just referring to the month of June. We, we champion pride, even if that pride is in sin. And we, we champion uh, aggression. We champion uh, just this this right to be right, even even if it hurts somebody else. That's what the culture champions, but the gospel says do otherwise. So all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brother love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. I want to begin our conversation this morning with really how we interact with somebody else. I've become very aware of this when it comes to counseling and pastoring. That oftentimes uh, things are cloaked by our behaviors. Number one, your worship guide, and I'll, and I'll explain that. Number one, your worship guide. But everybody is going through something. The invisible pain is often the greatest pain. Everybody's going through something. The invisible pain, the things that you don't see on the outside is often our greatest pain. We all have struggles, amen? We all have our issues. Some of them are very visible issues. Some of them, you, we, we can't help, you just, you just know somebody's going through stuff. Perhaps it's because of social media or perhaps because of gossip or whatever else, but everybody knows, right? But there's a lot of those pains and those, those issues that are deeper than that. And we, and we kind of keep them to ourselves because we are afraid, and this is fear, we are afraid if somebody knows our problems, they're going to leverage our problems against us, right? The reality is this. Now, I, I think there should be caution with transparency, but the reality is all this. We all have our own fair share of issues and pain. And as we interact with each other, and I think this is the, the point of these five characteristics initially listed, as we interact with this, we are aware that people have stuff going on, right? And it's our, not our job to pile on, but to, to care for in the midst of the problem. You with me? Say, uh-huh. Number two. Human behavior often disguises the symptoms as the problem. Disguises the symptoms as the problem. We must look deeper for the real issues as we interact with one another. This is what I'm, I'm, I'm more painfully aware of as a pastor in counseling or conversation. There is the behavior and then there's the, the issue underlying the behavior, right? It's like, a, it's like layers of an onion. You see the outside layer, but there are a lot more layers than an onion, right? There's a lot more going on underneath the surface. And sometimes people tell you, I think about marriage counseling, people come in, well, this is what's going on. And they'll back and forth. Well, he said this and she said this and he did this and he did this. And it's just like back and forth. And like, well, what's the real issue? The real issue, they didn't even say the real issue yet, right? 
So, sometimes with interpersonal relationship, your best friend, you have a thing going on and you're like, well, they did this and they did this. He says, she said, but the real issue hadn't even been approached yet because the issue is deeper than that, right? And we need, we need to take that in consideration as we interact with each other in the body of Christ. That there are issues that are very from the front side, but most of the issues that we have are deeper. And people won't acknowledge it until you dig a little deeper. Right? Now, be, I'll caution, be careful how you dig, right? Dig in sympathy and compassion, brotherly love. One author made this, this, this statement. It's been given credit to Rick Warren and several other people, but I think it came from Doug Manning. He said, I've always felt that hurt people hurt people. God alone knows the whole story. He alone can pass judgment. I think this is where Peter begins because he realizes this. We have a tendency as people to hurt people. You know why? Because we're hurting. A lot lot of times we want to react to our hurts as compared to asking the question, well, what's really going on? And is perhaps the behavior or what I just received actually a symptom of something else? And it's not really me. It's maybe they got other stuff going on in their life. Amen? Right? Maybe they got other, other pain, other trials, other suffering. And I just happened to just to be in the way today, right? And I got the brunt end of that suffering. We need to be wise in how we react in those very moments. Verse 9, 1 Peter chapter 3. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. So when somebody hurts you or somebody, somebody says something mean to you, it's not your job to be vengeance is mine. Thus says Joey, right? And I go back at him, right? I cut you, you cut me. We keep cutting each other until we bleed to death. No, but on the contrary, this is the gospel. On the contrary, bless for this you were called that you may obtain then a blessing. Our, our initial thoughts is when we're hurt, we want to stand and defend ourselves. We want to stand up for our rights, our opinions, our perspectives, and we want to lash back out. But the gospel says, die to yourself daily. I think of the cross of the Lord Jesus. Imagine the ridicule, the suffering, the pain that he experienced. And instead, he calls for a blessing on the people. In fact, he even says, don't hold this against them. Like if it was me, I'm like, God, get them, right? He said, don't hold it against them. One author says, in commentary, one Sanchez, he said, not only are we called not to curse, but the other that we are called actively to seek to bless. It's one thing to keep your mouth shut. It's another thing to bless somebody when they're hurting you. This is, this is what Jesus did. And if I'm going to live like Christ, that means I'm going to live like Jesus in all areas of my life. And some of those areas are easy. It's like, you know, that makes sense. But in some of these areas, especially when it comes to those who are our enemies, those who hurt us, those who, 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 who try to, to slander us or make bad of us, instead of reacting and getting even, not only just to be quiet, no, take it one step forward. We're supposed to love them and bless them in that moment. That's hard. Would you agree? You ever been hurt real bad by somebody? And you really wanted inside of you, you, real, you wanted to let them have it. And you want to let everybody else know what really happened. Let me ask you this. Was that wise if you did it? Probably not. Because it probably elevated the situation. And what it did, more than anything else, was it hurt your relationship with that person, with God, and it ruined your testimony because of it. Right? 
And that, that's the eternal perspective. This morning I was upstairs with our students for a few minutes, and I was talking about eternal perspective. Like there's things in this life that we feel like we have the right to do, like because I'm a human, I have the right to defend myself. I have the right to stand up when something's wrong. And there is levels for that, absolutely. But sometimes our rights actually infringe upon the gospel. You with me? Our rights actually get in the way of the gospel testimony and witness in our life. We, we want to defend ourselves at all costs. That means I got to get ugly about it. What about the lost person watching you get ugly about it? Amen? That's hard. How do, how do, we, how do we navigate that? We live like Jesus. Verse 10, 1 Peter chapter 3. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, and this is where it really boils down to, and this is where it's going to hit us between the eyes and actually hit us in the, between the, the, the chin and the nose. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Now, I know that I'm speaking to a bunch of, of very wise people, but if you're not so wise, maybe, maybe let me employ you, employ you to encourage you to, to be wise in how you speak. Our tongue can be a disastrous tool. Number three, we must employ wisdom as the filter for our tongue. Just because we have something to say doesn't mean we should say it. You remember, there's a great theological truth found in Bambi, the movie. Remember that old movie, that Disney movie? And it was Thumper. Remember Thumper? He says, if you can't say something nice, don't say nothing at all. What, I mean, like, isn't that true? Our tongue could be a dangerous tool or it could be a vessel a blessing. And oftentimes we go back and forth between the two without any thought. Just because we have something to say doesn't mean we should say it. And this, this is pot calling kettle black. Amen. Don't think for a moment the preacher hadn't struggled right through this because there are times that I let my tongue get the best of me. Go get him, preacher. Go get him. And then the Holy Spirit has to wear me out in private. Amen. I, I'm known to have my foot in my mouth and chew on the leather. Some of y'all are the same way. I won't name any names in regard to that. Proverbs 18, verse 21 says, Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Chuck Swindoll said, We need to think of our tongue as a messenger that runs errands for our hearts. Our words reveal our character. Isn't that true? Paul would admonish in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear it. Matthew chapter 12, I'm just, just write these verses down because they're good to, to ponder. I remember years ago as a teenager, my mama, God love my mama. Uh, my mama made me look up every words, every, every scripture that had to do with the tongue. Because I, I had a little bit of a bad mouth for a while. And I remember one of my punishments one time was she put me, grounded me, number one. She took the car keys. And then, this is a long time ago. This is like last week, okay? Anyway, when I was, I was a teenager. And she took my car keys. And she made me look up every verse in the Bible and write out every verse in the Bible that had to do with your tongue. I can tell you, there's the Bible's full of references to how we should watch our tongue. Matthew chapter 12, verse 36 and 37. 
I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Ow! For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I've made this comment before, and I don't want to beat a dead horse. But just because we have social media doesn't mean we need to air out everything on social media. Social media can be a tool of the gospel. It could also be a tool of Satan. James 1, verse 26 James says, if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, he sees his heart. This person's religion is worthless. James chapter 3, he likens it, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among the members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed, has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And then these, this word's right here. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. If that doesn't hurt your heart, whew, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, James says, these things ought not to be. So like Peter's saying, hey, watch your tongue, watch your mouth. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for But on the contrary, bless those who you're called that you may obtain a blessing. And he, he starts quoting Psalm 34, that for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it to be a peacemaker. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, not the, the potsters, right? Some of y'all potsters. We've all been potsters before. I, I kid around sometimes. With students, kids, teenagers. We've got a lot of drama queens, drama kings, right? Sometimes we just need to keep it to ourselves. I'm not, y'all calm down over there. The guilty ones are laughing, that's all I'm saying, all right? Verse 12 For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we're being admonished here from the psalm that God will punish our evil deeds and our evil words. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous or enthusiastic for what is good? Paul would write. Who is there to harm you if you do the right thing? He says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Even if you suffer for doing the right thing, you will be blessed. And he goes on. This is verse 15. Verse 15. This is, a, by the way, a text we looked at a year and a half ago. We talked about apologetics. Remember that theme that we started a year and a half ago? New theme this year, last year, apologetics. This was our core verse, but here it is. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. And always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what Paul or what Peter's not saying is, hey, you just need to be quiet all the time. But Peter says, no, choose your words wisely. And when you speak, let it be a gospel speech. Amen. If we're going to use our mouth, let's use our mouth for good, for encouragement, for edification, not to tear down, not to distance people from the gospel. How many careless words do we use? How many careless behaviors do we do that keeps people from the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense that assumes a verbal defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Number four, the great commission, that command of God to go into all the world and make disciples with the gospel of Jesus Christ is infinitely more important than our comfort, our opinions, and our petty conflicts. Amen? That was weak. I was hoping I'd get a bunch of amens. The Great Commission is infinitely more important than our comforts, our opinions, and our petty conflicts. Thank you. The reality, this is, this is the counterculture. And this is the whole point of the whole series as we've looked at this point. Is as a Christian, the gospel changes me and changes the way that I act. It is not about me. It is about Christ and Christ alone. It is not about my opinions. It's not about my, my, my personal feelings sometimes because they can be deceiving. Amen. Right. It is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I live for the glory of one and one alone. And it is not me. Some of the times that the things that we fuss about really are very trivial. By the way, I'm not referencing any church trouble, by the way, today. I'm just addressing the text as it goes, okay? Somebody's like, what happened at church this week? I don't know. I hadn't been here a lot this week, to be honest with you. Nothing. It's just a text, okay? But doesn't it apply in our homes? Doesn't it apply at work? Teenagers, doesn't it apply at school? Because I'm sure y'all have issues at school sometimes with other students, right? Does, doesn't it apply in the church house? Doesn't these truths, like sometimes we just act foolishly and we fuss over the dumbest things in the world. And we forget about the most important thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Years ago, bring you back to my, my undergrad days, University of Mobile, uh, there was a theological argument. Some of you know the argument uh, that was being fought out in many churches two decades ago and still somewhat fought out today. And... Um, I was, I was always kind of in the middle, middle ground area. We'd go to theology classes and one group would sit over here. It doesn't matter what the group's name is. Another group would over here in that group. And I was like in the middle, like, well, Joey, what are you? I'm like, trying to be biblical, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Because I hate being labeled. Does that make sense? I hate being labeled one thing or another. One of the, the biggest things that irked me off about the whole conversation was I remember one day being in the University of Mobile cafeteria uh, and, and there'd been a group of basketball players sitting in the corner. And most of which were lost and they were there on scholarships. And it was our job as a Christian university is love them through Jesus and show them the gospel. And yet the preacher boys, the next table over, were arguing and fighting and making it personal about a dumb doctrinal viewpoint. What are we doing? We are putting up a stumbling block to the gospel of Jesus Christ by the way that we engage each other. Not only are we hurting interpersonal relationships, but we're putting up a wall that has no business being there. Amen? Let's go on. Verse, Acts chapter 4, I'll give you an example of that. Um, Peter and John, 
before religious leaders to let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. This is apologetics. Whom you have crucified, whom God has raised from dead by him, this man standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which, which must be saved. And as a result of that, the religious leaders of the day they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished and they recognized them that they had been with Jesus. As a result of the way they acted and in the way they were bold in the moment with the gospel, they recognized that they were living for Jesus. They had been with Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. And the question I got to ask in that example is would people recognize that we've been with Jesus by the way we act and interact with each other. Go on. Verse 16. Having a good conscience, Peter says, that's a spirit-informed conscience, so that when you are slandered, and the key there is you might want to underline this, so when you are slandered, not if, by the way, to live out the Christian life means you are going to experience suffering and persecution and slander. It's not a, it's not a if, it's a when. All right? Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So listen, we, we live in such God honorable way and a Jesus gospel focused way that when people look at our life and they try to make us look bad, you know what they see that I, I, gotta, I gotta make up something to make them look bad. They're gonna be put to shame as a result of that. Isn't that what Jesus did? Remember, remember his, uh, his trial? They had to fabricate lies about our Lord at his trial. Didn't Jesus model that? Live in such a way that people who wanna slander you have to make it up and they're ashamed of it. Verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I want to qualify doing good. Number five, we do good not to earn God's favor, but because we have already received his favor. We don't do good as the root of our salvation, but the fruit of our salvation. I'm reminded of Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and following. For by grace, Paul says, you've been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of work so that no one may boast. He says, we are his workmanship, creating Christ Jesus then for those good works, right? To do that which pleases God, pleases the gospel, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so what he says here is that it's better to suffer for doing good, that which God has already ordained for us as his workmanship to do, than for doing evil. He goes on, verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So then Peter grabs the example of Jesus as he suffers. When we all acknowledge today, and this is kind of weighty for just a minute, we all acknowledge that Jesus was good in every aspect. He is the only person who's ever lived that you can actually say that about. We ask each other, how are you today? I'm doing fine. I'm doing good. No, you're not. Casey and I joke on each other all the time. Casey Vickery comes around here. Hey, Joe, you okay? I'm good. He said, no, you're not. Every now and I'll get in. He said, I'm good. And no, you're not. Because the Bible says, no, I'm good. None, none righteous. Only Jesus. All right. It's, it's called the, theologically slapping each other. Okay. I'm not sure if that's Okay. We do it with all the love in our hearts, okay? Well, most of the love in our hearts. I may be contradicting what I just said about my tongue. Anyway, that's not the point, all right? But, but we could look at the example of Jesus and say, Jesus was good. And if Jesus, who was completely good, suffered the way that he did, why would we be any different? That's, that's, that's the point he makes here. Now, he, he highlights the gospel in this. 
that being put to death in flesh, he was made alive in the spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Like this is one of those hard texts when we look at it like, I have no idea what Peter's talking about. He's, he's making an argument, he's making a comparison, but he's also saying the truth. That after, after Jesus rose in the grave, this is, you put JB next to this. I believe that Jesus made sure the demons, the spirits in prison, knew that he was alive. Does that mean that Jesus, Jesus went down to hell? I'm not saying that. I, what I'm saying is that Jesus let the devil know that he had won. Amen? <laughs> he said, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. We'll continue on, and then we'll come back. If the world hates you, it's John 15, hang on. I'm skipping through some notes. Sermon number 10. Y'all stay with me. Because they firmly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely. So now we're talking about Jesus' resurrection, and now we're talking about the days of Noah. What is Peter saying? Peter is making a, a, an illustration, a point, that the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, Jesus died, defeats death, raised from the grave. All right? He, illustration back. Evil in Noah's day. There is, a, there is a redemption going on in the person of Noah. Life, death, and a resurrection. All right? He's, he's using an analogy. And then he even draws it to baptism. 20, verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Now, I, I hate this verse. Can I just say that? Because there's, I've heard people say, well, baptism is really a part of your salvation. And I would say, you have to look around the context of this scripture. That is not what Peter's saying. Peter never says that that water up there is magical hocus pocus. Never says that. What Jesus does make very clear, what Peter makes clear, and all the authors of the New Testament make clear, is what that is up there is a picture of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what you see in baptism. And as a result of that, I, got, I just got to say, I thank God for Indigo this morning for being baptized. She sets an example for all of us that she publicly acknowledges her, her life, her death of her sin, her resurrection in Christ because of what Christ has accomplished for her on her behalf. If there's anybody in the room, I got to tell you, if there's anybody in the room who's never done that, that doesn't save you. But oh my gosh, that's important. That's important. Because I have seen over and over and over people who have neglected to follow the first step in obedience and baptism, and their faith is really completely halted until they fake the first step of obedience. That is a public profession and demonstration of your faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Indigo, for showing us how to do it. I appreciate that. Proud grandma right there. Good for you. Let's go back. Verse, or number six in your worship guide. If suffering is front and center in the gospel, we're going to get back to this in two weeks, then it must also be a tangible evidence of the Christian life. Some people have asked me recently, why do you talk about suffering so much? Because the Bible talks about suffering so much. Because the gospel is a gospel of suffering. It is not the gospel of easy days. It is not the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity. It is not the gospel that if you do this, God is, he is mandated to do that. The gospel is the gospel of suffering. And as a result of that, we need to have a theology of, of suffering. And a robust one at that. 
We better be prepared for it. If you ain't going through suffering, let's just make this. If you ain't going through suffering, hey, if you ain't going through suffering, you will be if you follow Christ. The question is, are you suffering now? Are you coming out of suffering or are you going into suffering? Because that's reality. If you're not in suffering right now, brace yourself. If you follow Christ, you will. Not if, but when. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life of Christ, Jesus will be persecuted. Psalm 34 verse 19, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Philippians 1, 29 and 30, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see that? You've been granted to you for the sake of Christ. You should not only believe in him, but also suffer. So it's almost like the other side of the coin. Like if you're going to believe in Christ, you're going to suffer. John 15. If the world hates you, Jesus says, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Let me, let me caution you. If the world loves you, I would check where you're at. Certain affirmations are actually denials of living in Christ. And certain rejections are actually affirmations of living in Christ. Amen? Where's the source? John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus says, they will also persecute you. I love Paul Washington. We all need difficult days to increase our dependence on God and learn that his grace is sufficient. John 16, 33, Jesus says, in the world, you will have tribulation and trouble. Trouble, trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I would say that suffering is not a exceptional thing in Christian life. It will become a normative thing if we live different. The more distinctly you, different you live for Christ, the more you'll be rejected by the world. The more you live out the commands of the gospel, the more you live out his moral law, the more that you stand on the convictions of biblical truth, the more that you will be in the crossfires of this culture. You must decide and I must decide. Are we going to compromise in that or are we willing to suffer in that? That suffering right now in our context is, yeah, we're called names. And there are certain rights that are going to be starting to be pulled, perhaps. Suffering context for people in Asia or Afghanistan. Think about China. Think about places in, in the Middle East. That suffering is a whole other level. Are we willing to go that far for the cause of Christ? Let's jump back to the text. Baptism, which corresponds, this now saves you. Verse 21, as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. Number seven, I'm done, we're last. I'm done, stick a fork in me. Number seven, there is something beautifully redemptive in every trial, every pain, and every suffering. Now, I want you to back out of 1 Peter chapter 3. You remember who Peter was writing to? The suffering church. The church that was under trial. You. 
And Peter's reminding us that everything we go through has a divine purpose, a redemptive purpose. The good day that God gave you this week, maybe you just had one. It was God's fresh air to you. Amen? Fresh air. The rough day you had this week was God's way of reminding you that you're not alone, that he's still with you. The, the slander that you received this week was a reminder that just as Christ was slandered, you walk in suffering with him and persecution with him. And you should rejoice that you've been chosen to suffer along with him. See, everything in our life has this redemptive providential purpose. And when we remember that, that I guess this is how I kind of sum up the whole text here as we look at the tension. If you remember that big picture of God's providence, those moments when we want to use our mouth as a weapon, we're able to stop and catch our thoughts and not retaliate. When we want to get even with the world who's, who's, who's out to get us, we remember there's a purpose in this. When we want to advocate our rights over the gospel, we remember there's a purpose in this pain. There's a purpose. And God will do more in my pain, my trial, and my suffering than I can do in my own vengeance. Amen? In many ways, my own vengeance gets in the way. Remind again, Romans 8, 28. Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Again, let me remind you the caveat of good. Good may not be exactly what we define good as. Good may not be comfortable. It may not be easy. It may not be what's most desirable in your easy life. Good may be suffering. Good may be trial. Good may be slander. But God will take all of that work together for ultimate greater good for those who are called to his purpose. So therefore, we can say what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, and I'm done. Paul says, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. The Holy Spirit has been given to us. Your bad days, God has a purpose in. Your good days, God has a purpose in. And those mad days in the middle, God has a purpose for them as well. Live right there in the center of the gospel. Now, that's easy saying, but harder doing, especially when it comes to people who want to hurt you, belittle you, slander you, persecute you. Live right in the center of the gospel. And to ask this question I've been asking all week long to our students at youth camp. What does the gospel require of me? And sometimes it requires me to be quiet. Sometimes it calls me to bless when others curse. Sometimes it calls me to serve. Sometimes it calls me to pray fervently. But the gospel never calls me, never calls me to slander, to get even, to, to take my own will over God's. Never calls me that. Let's pray together. God, I pray that you would take, Lord, the remnant of what I have left you've given me. Use it for your glory.
God, I thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, it's living and active and sharper in two-edged sword. And it convicts us, encourages us to live closer to Christ. Lord, I pray when it comes to our relationships inside these walls and outside these walls, that you'd put a guard over our tongue, put a guard over our heart. Lord, help us to interact with each other and others with the gospel in mind, to forgive even when it's hard, to show grace and mercy because you've shown so much grace and mercy, to be compassionate, sympathetic, be humble. Would help us to look at each other and even when we perceive we are mistreated, to ask the question, what's going on below the surface? Maybe my brother or my sister is hurting. As compared to retaliating, Lord, we care and we pray and we love because that's what the gospel has called us to do. Would help us to love each other. Because love covers a multitude of sins. God, I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't have a relationship with Christ, Lord, lead them to repentance this morning. Help them to recognize their need for forgiveness and to place the full weight of their faith and trust in Christ, in Christ alone, for their salvation. To save their soul and be Lord of their life today. Build your kingdom. Convict us of our sin. Do what only the Holy Spirit of God can do in this moment. I pray that in Jesus' name.